Well, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This morning we'll be reading verses 8 through 24. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. And they, that is to say Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden He placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. Well, what comes to mind when you hear the second, the second half of Genesis chapter 3 read? What themes come to mind? Well, you may be thinking of judgment and death and curse. If these are the sorts of things that come to mind, you're not wrong. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, we are told explicitly that this is judgment day. The Lord God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This walking is the same word that's used in Jonah chapter 1 to refer to the storm raging back and forth, walking to and fro. The cool of the day could also be rendered the spirit of the day of judgment. Think of the spirit of the day of judgment that the prophets talk about or that is spoken of in, in John's revelation. This is judgment day. God is coming in judgment against our first parents. Now, while this theme of judgment is a prominent or or major theme here in in Genesis chapter 3, another theme that's arguably even more significant here in this chapter is the theme of grace. Apart from the grace of God, Adam and Eve would have immediately perished and died from the sight of God. So we do need to embrace this this theme of judgment. This is judgment day, but this day is also a day of good news and good tidings. We should think also here in the second half of Genesis chapter 3, the joy of Christmas morning. Consequently, then, this morning, I I want us to focus upon this theme of grace. I want us to focus upon this theme of grace as we consider the rest of Genesis chapter 3. Indeed, God's grace, as it is revealed here in these verses, serve as the foundation for every other exposition of the grace of God in the entire Bible. This is how important these verses are. Well, as we consider this topic of the grace of God, I'd like to do do that in in three main ways. First, we'll consider the need for grace, the need for grace. Second, we'll consider God's grace for the church. And then third, God's grace for society. So the need for grace, God's grace for the church, and God's grace for society. Well, if you recall from last week, we learned that our first parents sinned. They did what God told them not to do. They ate of the forbidden fruit. And consequently, they were naked and ashamed. Then in in verses 8 through 9, God comes in judgment. He's walking in the garden in the spirit of the day of judgment. And what do our first parents do? They hide. They hide because of the guilt and shame of their sin. Now this teaches us that man, because of his sin, is alienated from God. 
man struck a deal with the devil and cut himself off from his creator. Man is alienated from God because of his sin. This also teaches us that man, because of his sin, is alienated from his wife. Notice that Adam and Eve's shame is directed not only against God, but against one another. Man is alienated from his fellow image bearer. Shameful nakedness in the ancient world was a legal symbol for divorce. Shameful nakedness in the ancient world was a legal symbol for divorce. And so what we are witnessing here is the first divorce. The first broken marriage in human history. Man is both alienated vertically from God, his creator, and horizontally from his fellow image bearer, his wife. Thus, man is in need of God's grace. Grace that will restore this vertical relationship and grace that will restore his horizontal relationship. Man is in need of God's grace. So now I want us to focus upon God's grace, which restores our vertical relationship with God, our creator. Now in verses 14 through 15, you'll notice that God curses the serpent. In verses 14 through 15, God curses the serpent. However, embedded in these curses are promises of grace. Embedded in these curses are promises of grace. And so in verse 15, or verse 14, excuse me, we see that God tells the serpent that the serpents will be cursed above every other beast of the field and that the serpent will forever be a slithering creature. Well, God continues in verse 15 and he says that he will place enmity between the woman and between the serpent, between her offspring and between his offspring. What does God mean by this? What, what is he referring to? Well, God here is breaking up, graciously breaking up the covenant, the relationship, the agreement that Adam and Eve enacted with the devil. They broke covenant with their God and struck a deal with this ancient serpent. And God here is breaking up that relationship. He's placing enmity between the woman and the serpent. He's promising that God's elect people will no more be under the sway of this serpent. Moreover, God is also promising that there will be conflict between the elect and the reprobate, between the church and the world. Why is it that throughout all of human history, there's always been conflict between the true church and the world? Well, it's because we live in a post-Genesis 3 world in which God has placed enmity between the, sea, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Now, God continues in the second half of verse 15. And, and God says that he will appoint a singular male figure from the woman's offspring who will crush the head of this serpent. God here is promising a second Adam. 
God's promising to send a second Adam who will do what the first Adam should have done. The first Adam should have crushed the head of the serpent at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam himself was a priest called to guard and protect the sanctity of the garden. To protect the garden from all unholy intruders. Consequently then, God here in verse 15 is promising to send a second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. Yet, notice what God continues to say here. He says that the serpent, nevertheless, will still bruise this individual's heel. Because of God's justice, Jesus will have to die. Because of God's justice, Jesus, this second Adam, will have to die. His, his heel will be bruised by this ancient serpent. Indeed, if you skip down to the, the end of this passage, you'll notice that God, as he's exiling Adam and Eve from the garden, he places a flaming judgment sword in front of the tree of life, indicating to us that the path to the tree of life, which itself is a symbol of heaven, a symbol of new creation, goes through God's judgment sword. Jesus will have to taste, experience, receive a blow from this judgment sword in order to restore to us the right to eat of this tree of life. Verse 15 is the first announcement of the gospel. It's sometimes referred to as the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. Jesus, uh, God here is promising a second Adam. God here is promising that he will still bring his people to his seventh-day Sabbath rest. That was God's original intention in creation, and God is still going to make good on that intention. But now, it's not going to come through the first Adam. It's going to come through the second Adam, through Jesus Christ. Now, if you skip down to verse 20, how does, how does Adam respond to this promise? Does Adam even know what God is saying? Well, notice that in verse 20, Adam names his wife Eve. And what does Eve mean? Well, it means that she is the mother of all living. Many commentators believe that this is Adam's profession of faith in the gospel message of verse 15. Adam believes that God will bring about this second Adam through the womb of his wife Eve. Consequently then, in verse 21, God covers, he clothes Adam and Eve in the skins of dead animals. The, these, these skins are a, are, are a sacrament of sorts, assuring Adam and Eve that this second Adam will cover their shame and guilt through his blood and righteousness. Now, boys and girls, you may remember that, that the question from our Heidelberg Catechism that we reviewed quite a bit last year, where does faith come from? And the answer is that the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts through the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it through the use of the Holy Sacraments. Notice how Adam is experiencing that catechism question here in Genesis 3. The Holy Spirit is working faith in Adam's heart through the preaching of the gospel in Genesis 
And then the Holy Spirit confirms that faith through the sacrament of these animal skins in verse 21. Adam, Adam was a recipient of God's promises and sacraments just as we are the recipients of God's promises and sacraments. Now, Reformed theology has traditionally asserted that Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of what is sometimes referred to as the covenant of grace or the covenants of grace. <clears throat> Meaning that every subsequent covenant is giving us more revelation about this first gospel promise. So in Genesis 3.15, we learn that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Then in the Abrahamic covenant, we learn that the seed of the woman will bless the nations. The seed of the woman will bring us to the heavenly land of Canaan, the new Jerusalem. In the Mosaic Covenant, we learn that the seed of the woman will grant us the right to enter not an earthly sanctuary, but the heavenly sanctuary. We learn in the Mosaic Covenant that the seed of the woman will spill his blood to bring about a definitive forgiveness of sins that's infinitely greater than the blood of bulls and goats. In the Davidic covenant, we learn that the seed of the woman will establish an everlasting throne, an everlasting reign, an everlasting kingdom that shall have no end. Then in the new covenant, these promises, types, and shadows are fulfilled as the second Adam is, is born and enters human history through the womb of the Virgin Mary. Boys and girls, you've, many of you have probably experienced or had the assignment in school of writing an essay. And when you write an essay, typically you state your main point at the beginning of the essay, and then every subsequent section or per paragraph is unpacking, explaining, or unfolding that original main point. Well, you can think of Genesis 3.15 as being the main point of all of Scripture, and then every subsequent covenant is like a new paragraph, a new section that's unpacking that original main point. Now, the question that should be in our minds at this point is, how is God going to bring into this world this serpent-crushing seed of the woman? How is God going to bring into this world this serpent-crushing seed of the woman if Adam and Eve are naked and ashamed, if they're divorced, if their marriage has been completely broken down, how is God going to bring about this seed of the woman? Now I'd like to consider God's grace for society. God's grace for society. As in verses 14 through 15, in verses 16 through 19, God is cursing the woman and the man. However, embedded in these curses are also promises of his preserving common grace. We saw this in verses 14 through 15. Curses with embedded promises of grace. And so in verses 16 through 19, we see these common curses, but embedded in these common curses are also promises of God's preserving grace. Now notice that these curses and promises of grace are enjoined to man's original commission in the image of God. 
They relate to marriage. They relate to the call to be fruitful and multiply and fill, and fill the earth. They relate to man's call to work and keep the garden. Here in these verses then we see that God is preserving the image of God, albeit he's preserving it in a fallen form. The image is cursed, but yet it will still be preserved. And so in verse 16, God addresses this commission of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And notice, notice that he tells the woman that childbirth will now be painful. That's the curse. The promise of God's preserving grace is that there will still be children born. They will still be able to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In the second half of verse 16, God addresses the institution of marriage, which also is, one of, is tied to the image of God commission. And God says to the woman that your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, I'd like to step back for a moment and reflect upon this. Is this a statement of God's curse? Is this a statement of God's preserving grace? Or is it both? Is this desire an adversarial desire? Or is it a good, healthy, restorative desire? Is this rule of the husband a domineering rule? Or a benevolent, self-sacrificial rule? I think the context of Genesis 3 helps us answer some of these questions. Remember, remember, Adam and Eve are divorced. They're naked and ashamed. Their marriage has been rent asunder. The question that should be in our minds at this point is, Will there ever be another marriage again? Sin has wrecked havoc on the relationship between image bearers. But remember, remember verse 21. What does God do in verse 21? He clothes Adam and Eve in the skins of dead animals. In the ancient world, uh, placing a garment on a woman was a symbolic pledge for marriage. It was sort of like an engagement or a renewal of one's marital vows. Many commentators see in verse 21 a marriage ratification ceremony. In fact, other commentators um, point to the fact that these animal skins may have come from one animal, which, which in itself may symbolize that God is restoring this one flesh relationship. So as we read verse 21, we should see our God restoring the institution of marriage. And based on this context, then, it's at least plausible for us to read the second half of verse 16 as not a statement of God's curse, but rather a statement of God's preserving grace. Women will still have a desire for marriage for their husband. Men will still have the ability to exercise a self-sacrificial and benevolent headship within the home. Marriage will continue. Well, in verses 17 through 19, God addresses this image of God commissioned to work, to work as God worked. And notice how he tells Adam that his work will now be toilsome. This is the curse. Your work will now be toilsome, but yet food will still come forth from the ground. Your work will still be effective. That's the aspect of God's preserving grace. And so in verses 16 through 19, we see God's grace for society. Notice that, that these curses and these promises of grace aren't only for church members. These are for all image bearers of God. This is, these are references to God's grace for society. 
This is God's preserving or common grace. God is preserving the image of God in a fallen form. God is preserving the image of God in a fallen form. Now, what is the connection between God's grace for the church and God's grace for society? Well, we should see God's grace for the church as being displayed within the theater of God's grace for society. We should see God's grace for the church being displayed within the theater of God's grace for society. Again, how are we going to get from Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem at the beginning of the gospel? Well, it's through a lot of people getting married and having kids. God's grace for the church is displayed within the theater of God's grace for society. Even in the new covenant, after the coming of Christ, how does God continue to build this church? Well, in part, through people getting married and having kids and catechizing those kids within the home and within the church and those kids growing up and doing the same. How is the ministry of the gospel supported in this age? Well, Paul's very clear. It's through people working with their hands and giving a portion of those earnings so that the church might be supported and that ministers of the gospel might earn a living wage for their work of the ministry. So again, God's grace for the church is displayed within the theater of God's grace for society. We have to be careful that we don't have what's sometimes referred to as an over-realized eschatology, where we want to pull more of heaven in this present age than God actually has done. God still has purposes for marriage, for having kids, even for your secular vocations when it comes to the church. He still uses these common institutions for the good of his kingdom here on earth. And we need to have a category for that because God's grace for the church is displayed within the theater of God's grace for society. Now, Genesis 3 gives us really two lenses through which we can view life in this world. On the one hand, we can view life through the lens of God's curse. There's conflict. Conflict between the church and the world. There's strife within relationships, within marriages. There are, uh, we struggle with infertility, miscarriages, stillborns, death. Work all too often is laborious and toilsome and unproductive. These things are true because we live in a sin-cursed world. However, there's another lens through which we can view life in this world. We can view life in this world through the lens of God's grace. Christ continues to build this church even though the gates of hell seek to prevail against it. People still desire to get married and we are still able to have kids and work still brings about a level of satisfaction and we are able to lay up an inheritance through that same work for future generations. Therefore, what attitude should we have as we look out at life in this world? Well, we should be pessimistic optimists and optimistic pessimists because we live in a sin-cursed world through which God continues to display his special and preserving grace towards us, his people, and the members of our society. In a few moments, we're going to have the privilege of once again coming to the Lord's table. And when we come to the Lord's table, we partake of bread and wine. And when we partake of bread and wine, the bread and wine remain bread and wine. There's nothing magic 
magical going on in the Lord's Supper. However, by the blessing of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit, this bread and wine become means through which we enjoy union and communion with the risen Christ. In a similar way in which God used basic, ordinary animal skins to deliver the restorative grace of Christ that Adam and Eve so desperately needed.